Welcome to the Half Space Podcast. Hi, this is the Half Space Podcast and it's brought to you by St Mary's University Football Coaching and Development Programmes. This podcast is for coaches and will bring you conversations on cutting-edge research topics and discussions on how you can embed these into your coaching. Each week, we will bring you a different conversation with an expert and consider how you can embed the concepts into your coaching. Please follow us on Twitter at the Half Space Pod for a research paper linked to this week's podcast. This week on the Half Space Podcast, we speak to Mark Turner. Mark is a lecturer here at St Mary's University and he talks about his prior roles in performance analysis in rugby and how he works with coaches to embed performance analysis within their practice. So Mark, thank you ever so much for joining us on the Half Space Podcast today. I know you're really busy with marking and other bits and bobs, so it's great that you could make time for us today. Um, just to kick us off, it'd be really great to find out a little bit about how you first got into sport. What was it? Was it as a child you kind of were playing and interested in sport, but what was it that kind of lit that passion for you in terms of sport? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, thanks for having me, Claire. Uh, crikey, um, I couldn't pick any particular point I just remember playing sport my dad used to play professional football back in the 70s so it was kind of just in the family and then my brother played football um which I sort of got to enjoy myself for quite a few years played within an academy setting um or a performance setting so I, I can't and then I pretty much played every sport at school as well uh, field hockey I got believe despite working in rugby now I actually got forced into rugby by a bigger and stronger mate of mine who bullied me once he won there's one particular day uh, they didn't have enough team uh, enough players to field a team so he basically told me to go home at lunchtime and get the kit it was gonna beat me up so I went home got my kit come back played my first game of rugby at probably 15 years old absolutely loved it I had no idea what was going on but it was great and it kind of ignited my enjoyment for actually other sports a little bit more. And that's when the hockey sort of kicked off. Um, and then I didn't really play uh, any sport too much through college. I used to play sort of a bit of senior men's football whilst I was sort of studying on the side and stuff. And then that kind of developed into actually joining the rugby team for myself. Uh, probably, I think I was about 18 when I started playing rugby properly for a club. And then just stuck with rugby ever since and then stayed for that through my whole time playing for a few years. A few, few, uh, few periods where I wasn't playing as much, just dislocated shoulders and niggles here and now. I'm not the not the toughest of toughest of players. And then, um, yeah, as, as I started uni, I started uni as sort of like a mature student, probably around 25, I think I was, at which point kind of the rugby kicked off a little bit further. I started doing some... Um, sort of backroom staff at my local club because I didn't really have too much time to play so become kind of SNC support so I started doing my uh, accreditation and strength and conditioning which I didn't really follow through on because then the analysis sort of kicked off uh, in my second year of second year of uni so and then that's when the analysis took over and I stopped playing altogether really. And what was it about kind of performance analysis that that drew you to it and kind of maybe moved you away from that more S&C kind of side? What what was it that kind of made you think, oh, I'm quite interested in that. I'd like to get involved a little bit more. It was, it's a strange one because I kind of fell, fell into it by accident initially. It was during my, back end of my second year, my lecturer, well, as, yeah, just towards my second year, my lecturer asked me if I wanted to go do some experience with England women. They needed someone whilst uh, 
the senior analysts went and worked for the sevens team. The under-20s went with the senior team for Six Nations and then they didn't have anyone to do the under-20s. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a try. And then we went and we played at Isha and it was, it was kind of, it sounds strange, but I think probably most analysts can sim- sort of associate with this, was you had, a, you had an involvement in something special, but you didn't have the limelight. No one, no one was looking at you. No one really paid too much attention to you apart from the coaches. And then that's obviously sort of strengthened when we got back to the hotel afterwards. And then the coaches are sat down asking questions. Back then, the analysis was very, very basic. So it's actually more just about giving them numbers of, you know, tackles missed, line breaks made, line breaks conceded, um, kicking opportunities and things like that. It wasn't anything too detailed like you'd go, like a lot of people go into now. Um, so it, it was that it was that involvement of the probably the coaching process that kind of interested me more of actually finding finding the reasons why things were happening on the pitch and why we decided to actually change the way we were playing so at half time or moving on to like the following week's game against France. And in terms of those first experiences, how much of a learning curve was it from kind of maybe first starting out, learning about some of the theories and things like that? at uni to then transitioning into hang on I'm I'm working with coaches I'm I'm working with a team like I, I need to get up to speed really quickly how much of that was kind of a, a big learning curve for you the whole thing was a massively steep learning curve for me personally because the uni I was at we didn't actually have performance analysis properly there we had a, a module of performance analysis but the uh, the masters in performance analysis hadn't, hadn't actually started where I was so it was still it happened the year after when I started my masters. So I come from being introduced to sports code one week, and then you get to a game and you've got to create a code window. You've got to create outputs, which when I say create outputs that time, it was very, very loosely based. I kind of just saw the numbers, copied them onto a word document, created like a printout for the players and the coaches. It wasn't, it wasn't outputs like I'd create today, for example, or, or most people or anyone would create today. So I kind of had to learn over a weekend, pretty much the whole process, which was a bit of a challenge. Um, and then obviously the interaction with the coaches as well. If they ask you a question, I had no idea. These were sort of international level coaches. I, if, if they asked me my opinion on something, I, I had to be very careful because I wasn't at my home club where I could speak uh, uh, probably not not uh, not very freely, shall we say. Um so, yeah, personally, from like a, a social development side and from actual the applied, applied uh, process of analysis, the learning curve, it literally happened within a weekend. And then that continued. Luckily, sort of, I was a relatively quick learner back then. So I was able to sort of develop quite quickly, ready for the following game when we had to do a return trip to France. Um, I kind of had everything set in place. I had time to sort of process it myself and find ways of doing things rather than sort of being thrown in at the deep end. And did you find that during this time you were able to draw on your experiences of kind of playing and, you know, being exposed to the environment through maybe that more S&C side, you were able to, to draw upon some of those experiences in new conversations with coaches when you were working with the players to kind of get you up to speed quickly so that you could hit the ground running? I think eventually, yes, without realising, I don't think it was, 
I don't think it was something that was obvious to me that maybe I was leaning on, certainly the S&C side of it. The coaching side of it, I felt um, I was probably, I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. You have that kind of imposter syndrome where you sort of sat there and you're with these, these, these top-level coaches. You don't feel like you should have an opinion or be allowed an opinion. So that was something that was quite difficult. So I, I didn't really lean on my rugby experience because in my head I was nowhere near the same level as those guys I played rugby I'd, I'd coached some very basic stuff and then did sort of some SSC programs and stuff for players which is fine but then the actual detail around the technical and tactical elements of a game I was kind of I was kind of very aware that I didn't feel like I, I, I would fit into that fit into that bracket of being able to speak to them in the same way that they spoke to each other um, Do you think the coaches were aware of that like if you reflect back upon it now do you think actually to be honest the coaches were even though you were maybe conscious of it the coaches maybe weren't and they were just keen to get your opinion and kind of the view from someone someone else I, I think early years early years the probably I don't think the coaches back then I'm, I mean I'm going back probably yeah, what, eight years Quinn's two, two years probably yeah ten years now so analysis, I think back then, certainly, yeah, certainly in that environment, I don't think was seen as part of the coaching process as much by the coaches, because I don't think the coaches in those environments actually had experience of analysis or having, they probably, they did analysis, obviously, because they'd been looking at numbers and looking at tactical plans and game plans and strategies, but I don't think they they would have had the experience of having an, an analyst there uh, and knew what to do with them. So you kind of, that was when you used to be used as like, the camera person. You used to do the coding, you used to break the game up, and then you used to give them some numbers. And then they might ask questions that they were unsure of, but I'm not sure they kind of were asking because they felt that you had something massively valid to offer. Not not like it would be now, like from going from looking back now, think about then and to where I was just before I left Quinn's, where you were, you were part of the coaching group. You sat in the coaches' meetings, and you were you were, you were almost expected to have an opinion, and you, at times, were expected to be able to back that up and argue it when people would disagree. Um, it, it's it's kind of like two. For me, it felt it feels a bit slightly a bit like two polar opposites. And I, I wonder if that, to an extent, is almost that changing place of performance analysis within kind of performance environments, because I think over the last 10 years and certainly and it's not every environment by any means but I think where we're currently at is that we're starting to see more environments keen to put that coach and analyst closer together and get get them to work closer together and we're starting to see you know a number of organizations discuss the role of the coach analyst or the analyst coach and yeah a hundred percent I think that over the last 10 years and hopefully as, as we move forwards, we're seeing that transition more, hopefully away from the analyst who is just a camera operator and just there to kind of code the game to be someone who's maybe included within the discussions and, and, and their opinion is, is valued a little bit more. But like I say, I, think, I don't by any means think that is every environment, um, but I think hopefully that's where we're, we're transitioning to. I think it's. Um, I think it depends on the coach's experience. 
yeah, it, again, it is what the coaches get exposed to. I also notice certainly in the professional environment, the coaches that are coming through now are tend to be ex-professional players or they've worked in professional environments where they've been exposed to analysis as players. So they, they've been on the receiving end of analysis. They know it exists and they know um, they know what the outputs can look like and what, what the players can be getting told from it. So as they come in as coaches in that professional environment, they're kind of, they're, they're keen to learn and keen to understand actually what analysis can offer that coaching environment. I think it's, and it sounds, sounds terrible and it's not on anyone of a certain age onwards. It's, it's, it, it kind of, it kind of filters between, between the age groups, but that sort of old school coach where they have their coach and they go by their coaching instinct and their gut, their gut instinct and what they feel might be going on. That seems to be filtering out, whereas actually now coaches are turned to analysts and some people see analysts actually, they watch more games than anyone else. So therefore you should be asking them what they see. It should, you should be asking them what they know because I know from experience, I guarantee you'll come a, come a Saturday morning or a Saturday afternoon, three o'clock kickoff, that opposition that we're about to play, I know I've watched more games or more detail on that team than any of the coaches have because I will be doing, be myself and one other analyst in the professional environment doing work for five coaches. So those coaches will only look in their areas. They might look at a couple of others with the crossovers for discussions, but we will still be expected to give that information on every single specific area that they cover. Absolutely. And I think it's that, like you say, it's not necessarily every coach and, you know, that there are some coaches that, that have been around sport for a long time that are very keen to engage with performance analysis that are very sort of, you know, um, contemporary in their processes, if you like. But I think we are seeing a new breed of coaches who, whether it's through the coach education that they've done, maybe being exposed to a bit more performance analysis or whether it's like you say, being a player and getting some experience of performance analysis through that. But I think we are seeing a new breed of coaches who are aware of the potential that performance analysis can give and see it very much as a learning opportunity. Whereas I do wonder whether historically it was almost, this is my opinion, can you as an analyst give me some evidence to, to support that opinion rather than it maybe being the opinion is uh, informed by the analysis rather than being evidenced by it? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're bang on there because you, you kind of, I, I have a couple of examples in my head where I probably, I won't mention any names, but you'll, you'll essentially ha- collect a lot of blanket stats where you'll collect everything that happens in a game and then before a team meeting on a Monday, a review of the game from Saturday, the coach will filter through and kind of pick out what suits their argument. So whether it is um, the team got beat and they'll try and find something to counteract actually what they said they wanted to play like and they didn't play like it. And then they, you can manipulate that. You any, Anyone that's worked with numbers or any coaches know you can manipulate those numbers so easy and you can change the context almost. Um, whereas I look at kind of the way we left it at Quinn's, our, our KPIs were based around our playing style. So we actually, the numbers that were coming out represented the performance. So I was speaking to, funny enough, Will Broderick. So we were talking about doing the sevens analysis. So whilst I've been doing a little bit for him on the side over the last few months, he said they, they look at certain numbers that are looking really good on paper, but they're getting beat. 
and vice versa. Sometimes they're winning, but the numbers aren't quite matching. And I said, well, that, that, that goes around. You're probably looking at the wrong things. You're, lo you're looking at the wrong KPIs. I'll rephrase that. You're not looking at the wrong KPIs. The KPIs you've got aren't suiting your style of play. So therefore, you've gone from where you used to just collect, say, like back in the day, when, when analysis first started, tackles made, tackles missed. That's okay, but now we're going to more detail. So we're looking at two-person tackles in certain areas of the pitch because that's what we want to defend like because we need to slow the ball down in those areas. Um, you might be looking at dominant collisions in certain parts of the area, uh, certain parts of the pitch as well, but then you're also looking at the, the performance after that tackle. So are you counter-rucking or are you making a jackal attempt? Again, those, those definitions and those KPIs will change depending on where you are on the pitch. Therefore, that then now suits your style of play because in between the 15s, for example, I want I want two-person tackles, so I want the ball to be slowed up so our defensive can reset. Or out in the 15s, I, I want our I want our players as soon as the tackle's made to be counter-rucking for a quick turnover in, in the wide areas of the pitch. So you have to be, and I don't think it's an easy thing to do, certainly for young coaches that maybe haven't come in and developed that experience yet. And vice versa, I also think it's hard for the older generation of coaches that aren't aren't used to aren't used to being able to manipulate um, their environment enough, um, and and again coaching that gut instinct. Whereas actually, you can turn around and say, well, they're they're counter rucking on, on on the wings. We need to commit. Maybe we need to play like a a one three three. So we've got a, a, a forward in each channel wide. So then we have one of the bigger boys to sort of protect the ball a bit better than our outside backs. Uh, you, you know, and it, it starts to then be involved in creating a game plan and how you go about developing the whole strategy of your your tactics and the technical norms of the, of the individuals involved. And I wonder how much in terms of that kind of personalised performance analysis to a specific team, to a specific coach, and they're almost playing philosophy, whether that's this is how we're going to attack, this is how we're going to defend. I wonder how much some of that kind of disjointed approach with some of the performance indicators that coaches use to track performance is maybe because some coaches are kind of doing almost copycat analysis if you like so oh this, this is this is what we should be doing you know this is what we should be tracking either you know this is what we know these other clubs track so therefore we'll do it whereas actually in the same way that as a coach, you would develop a bespoke playing style and this is how we're going to attack and defend because this is the style of rugby that we want to play or because this is the players that we have. Really, that then needs to be mapped to your performance indicators. And I think this idea of kind of copycat analysis sometimes can trip coaches up because they don't see how everything has to be tailored to that style of play. Yeah, and I think um, we had uh, Sean Long on the doing some stuff for our um, the rugby module at the uni, and he um, came in and made a valid point. And it's something that I've experienced, but didn't really be I wasn't really aware of at the time. As, as a coach going into an environment in, in the same aspect as you might do analysis and do a copycat analysis, you need to go into an environment. You need to coach the players you've got, rather than coach the players to be something different. So you need to be able to suit your style of play to suit the players you've got. Harlequins are a prime example. They're, they're just loose. They're a loose team. I couldn't, I mean, I could break down sort of the um, the tactical parts to it, 
But also, if the if the lads see it, they want to play in a certain part of the pitch because they've seen something's on, they'll just go. They've got the freedom to do that. Um, whereas if you were to come in and try and coach them to play like a Saracens or like a more structured team, it, I don't think it would work because they don't... And, and vice versa, if you were to go and try and coach a Saracens team to play like Harlequins, I don't think that would work either. And it, and it's and it's the same when you're looking, you look at the KPIs, they kind of reflect that. So if you start then trying to use KPIs to suit a team that you think are the best in the league or the best in the world, or the best one is, I can remember a local rugby club, I was speaking to some coaches um, in, on an evening of just doing some consultancy stuff. They read an article that Eddie Jones had or had been done on Eddie Jones about stuff he's looking at. Like we were looking about doing the same thing. I can't remember what it is. It was something to do with momentum and kicking in certain areas. And I was like, oh, that's Eddie Jones. That's England. You don't have the same players as England. You're playing local club rugby. Why are you trying to do the same thing? It's not going to work. And they, 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 they couldn't understand. Like, well, that's what they're doing at top level. You think, well, yeah, because they can. That they, They're at the top level. You, you can't then replicate that yourself. It won't look the same. And it certainly won't feel the same, I don't think, for the players. And I, I think sometimes we see this a lot in sport, don't we, is that's, what may, that's what's made this team successful. So if we want to be successful, we've, we've got to do that. Whereas across sports, when you look at teams and clubs that have been successful, they're not usually successful because they've copied someone else's master plan. They're successful because they've gone, these are the players that we have. This is how we should set up. These are the tactics that we should employ. And then they've executed that and had all the support services, whether it's strength and conditioning, performance analysis, nutrition, whatever it is, to all build around that plan, ultimately, which is reinforced by the players who you have available. And I think sometimes we can just get so caught up in kind of, oh, the marginal gains and this is how this team's been successful. So we'll we'll copy that, that people forget that, you know, team sports are played by individuals and every team has a unique set of individuals. So make the plan that is best suited to those individuals that you have. Yeah. It, and it's, you, you said something there about the marginal gains is there's a, there's a term that goes around that I, I kind of get a bit, it, it, it does have an effect so that the one or two percenters, the one or two percent bits. And I think that's great. As long as you've got the rest of the 90% dialed, I was listening to uh, I was listening to a podcast this morning with Mark Weber, Formula One driver, and he was talking about to be successful. You don't need to do the fancy things; you just need to do the average things to a very, a very elite level. You get there, and then the one or two percenters, those small, small, small moments and small changes can actually make a difference. But and, and I, I think about it in rugby all the time. People. Certainly, again, it's something that filters down from the elite level to the lower level clubs where people want to make those marginal gains. Whereas actually, if, unless your core skills of rugby are up to, the, to an, like a, an acceptable level, those one or two percent things don't make a difference. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's, it's almost these buzzwords, isn't it, that kind of filter down, they're, they're covered in the press, they get loads of exposure and, and suddenly the next thing you've got kind of an under 10s team doing it on a, on a Sunday morning. And it's, I think, you know, the vast majority of coaches have their, their heart and their hopes in the right place, but 
yeah, sometimes I think we forget actually that we've just got players in front of us and whether it's rugby, whether it's football, whether it's hockey, it's a relatively simple game. It's about, you know, not focusing on that that 1%, particularly if you're in a development environment, but making sure we've got the basics and, and the fundamentals in place. And I think sometimes that, that can get a little bit lost, definitely. I'm really interested to find out kind of from those experiences with, with kind of England women, where you were you first kind of in those applied roles, where did your career transition to next and, and where did you move on to? So that, uh, so I, I carried on with England women for a couple of years, um, working with the under twenties and the sevens development team whilst I was at uni. And then as I come to the end of uni, my lecturer asked for me to do a master's in performance analysis. Probably not a great advert for being a lecturer now. I said, Eva, I'm not, in other words, I'm not really that interested, pal. And he said, what if I got you a work experience at Harlequins? And then I said, okay, can I have a think about it? And I said, he said, yeah, no problem. So I gave it like a week or so, spoke to a few people and kind of had the approach of, I'll, I'll be stupid just to not try it and see what happens. Luckily, it's worked out okay. So I did, I did my master's part-time at Chichester Uni. Um, and I was still doing a little bit of England women at times, dipping in for like uh, sort of like the development camps and the training camps and stuff to help out in a couple of tournaments um, abroad and things. And then started my internship at Quinn's where I kind of, at that point, I didn't have anyone in the academy doing any analysis. So I started just working with the loan, the players are out on loan plus the under 18s. Then at the under 16s, it was you were literally just going to film the games because we didn't really do much analysis on that. And then from there, I spent four years within the academy environment. So we went from having nothing set up to then we actually started being able to profile players. We were fortunate enough to still have some footage from some, some of the more senior players. We were able to start profiling players and their development against our existing sort of first team scene. Probably weren't senior, senior players at the time, but they become senior players. Um, did that for four years. Within that time, actually, we started up the. I was actually, I did a little bit of work with Richmond women, just to help them set up. Uh, Karen Finley, she come over to Harlequins, and that's when they started up the Harlequins women's team. So I said that I'd give them a hand and just try and get them started, so they could have something in place just to help the players. So I did that for a year till they got a, a proper analyst in full time to do the women's take that over. And then after that four years, I got offered the role of the senior team. Um, yeah, and then I just did, did four years with the senior team and then sort of knocked it on the head after that, really. Do you think that having that experience in Quinn's working on the women's side, but also working on the academy side, set you up really well for then stepping up into to that kind of first team role because it allowed you to maybe get a really good grounding about the organisation, how it worked, you know, the club's philosophy and kind of understand how everything was set up before you went in into that kind of uh, senior role, if you like. Yeah, 100%. And I think it goes back to what we were just saying about doing the core skills, doing the basics right. Um, I think a lot of people have this idea of analysis. They see the halftime chats. Funny enough, I was, I was having a moan about it this morning um, about people thinking analysis is actually just turning up with a big screen and then talking about what's happening on that screen. For me as an analyst, if you show me something on screen, I want to know how many times they do that in a game and how many times they've done that every game for the last at least six games. 
that's where the analysis process kicks in. So it, it was good for me to actually spend that time in the academy where there wasn't as much pressure on having all this really extreme details actually about developing the athlete. So the level of analysis was slightly more subjective. Um, so for me, it was, we would be setting up the camera. So you, you, again, your basic core skills of analysis, so you'd be setting up the camera, you set up some basic code windows so you could break the game up for the coaches and the players and also create some really basic outputs to, to help encourage and um, help the players learn without freaking them out by either putting too much information on or which I've seen happen, put uh, the wrong information on. So they see things as a negative. Certainly if you're dealing with people that are not used to analysis or data outputs or any sort of outputs and they don't really know how to link numbers together to, to, to create like a picture of what's actually happened in the game. They might see, a full, for example, a fullback might see they've made three missed tackles and they panic and then they go into their shell and think they're not playing well. Like, without realising or remembering or viewing the game with the coaches in a review meeting where, or sat down with me on some occasions, seeing that those three missed tackles, they they ran across the pitch to try and make a cover tackle and they make, try to make a tap tackle and it hasn't worked. That kind of has to be taken into account because that there's always context for everything that happens. So it, is, it, was, it was a great sort of learning experience um, in the sense that I got to get my basics right. I got to get to understand how players worked, uh, both from a, like a development point of view and sort of a more senior point of view, but also getting to work with the coaches who were development coaches as well. They weren't just about um, sort of results and the outcomes of what we're looking at. So, so those sort of like KPIs, they actually want those things that are slightly more subjective. So we might actually look at team outcomes. So we might look at creating overlaps out wide. How many times have we managed to do that? Or how many times was there an opportunity to go blind when there was an overlap who didn't take it. So then it becomes more of a, a tool for game understanding for the players. From that, you, you, you kind of, yeah, then you move on to the senior role where you actually go into a lot more depth around individuals' involvements in, in those whole processes. But it, it was good to get the basics in, get my core skills together and kind of build a level of confidence of, of actually, <laughs> and again, the, the, the imposter syndrome thing, and I might actually know what I'm talking about on occasion. Just picking up on something that, that you mentioned there that I'm really interested in is you spoke about kind of building that relationship with the players and really understanding the players and making sure they were aware of the context behind some of the, the numbers. How did you try and do that? And how did you try and almost create that buy-in for players so that actually this is a learning opportunity and it's not just something that is being used maybe as, as a stick to beat me with. Yeah, that, that, that was actually, that was quite a work on because that, that took a bit of time to, uh, time to kind of get our heads around as a group because it, the, we got to the point where actually we didn't give individual stats to age group, um, which I, I'm, I'm totally against still now. I, I don't think individuals at 15, 16, 7, yeah, 17 years old maybe should be getting individual data because if, again, you're running that risk if they don't know how to read it or don't know how to interpret it, it can have a massive negative effect. Also, in those environments, they're not full-time with you. Therefore, there's a chance that people in their sort of inner circle would see them. So you might get parents looking at them and then making their own interpretation 
have that you have that sort of involvement from significant others which can cause a completely different problem altogether so we, we kind of kept away from them seeing individual stuff and we just used it as a, a kind of an understanding for the coaches to see what's going on on, on an individual level but the coaches were good because they would have their contacts the context and it was it was wasn't really used as much apart from at that age group or that level sorry to just to get an understanding of player involvements um so it is, it is more about just trying to get like a, an inclusion and that inclusion in the players from our point of view of knowing the numbers but then also uh just using the team numbers to get the players to understand what's happening there's more just to understand the game understand our understand our process understand our style of play and what types of thing we're looking for um but, but having those relationships with the players is hard yeah for for, for, for many many reasons and di- did you find within that environment and i guess this is across kind of the academy and, and also the first team environment that the majority of players actually were keen to engage with you and and wanted to kind of use performance analysis as an opportunity to learn and develop and, and was that something on the whole that that was quite positively received um do you know what i look back now and i realize the ones that engage in that are the ones that do have that elite mentality like that i'm not going to go and talk about psychology because that's not my area of expertise but when i look at the players that now are in that starting harlequin side they're the exact same players that would send emails to me um, asking about details. Perfect example, lads flying high at the moment, Marcus Smith. The first time he saw ineffective and effective tackles and how he looked at it, or that, that, that stats output under 18s, first email in that first game, I can remember him email alone and say, what's the difference between an effective and ineffective tackle? My first instance is, uh, yeah, you know, save your bleep machine. I, I was like, bloody hell. Um, like the coaches should have made this clear to him when we were running defensive sessions. So my, my first initial response is um, <laughs> speak, speak to Jim, who was running the defence at the time. So it, I, I went to speak to Jim and said, look, Marcus just sent, sent this email over. He, he said, well, could, could we do something in one of the meetings on a Monday night and sort of explain it to him? And I'm like, you're the defence coach. Like, you, you should be doing this yourself, really. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, but you, you, but you know what ineffective and effective looks like because you do it for the first team as well on okay? Like when I was to do like the A-League stuff. Yeah, absolutely fine. And then you can see the players that would be asking questions about these outputs, how to understand their game are the ones. So your Marcus Smith, Caden Murley, Joe Marchants, who are all now first team players, they're the same ones that are engaging and they're des- they would you look back now and I realize they were just desperate to learn. Like there was just a this, this pure desperation of just wanting to learn and wanting to use these environments to get better rather than just looking at stat sheets in, trying to gauge how well they've done and then moving on to the next game. They'd want those, they'd want those stats outputs and they, to represent their game, but to then use them actually for the training sessions during those eight, like the coming weeks before the next game. And it must be kind of phenomenal now to reflect back and see how well these players are now doing to almost go, yeah, I, I can see it. And that kind of openness, eagerness, that kind of, almost attitude of well how how can you help me or how can what you do help help me to develop it it must be 
really heartwarming to look at where those players are at now and go, yeah, do you know what? Actually, it was their eagerness to learn, to develop that, that has helped them to get into the position that they're in now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think also it, it, there's, there's lots of things that get overlooked by some people during that develop, those development phases because they're playing rugby, they want to play rugby, which is great, and they use the coaches, but I think they forget that there's other elements to that development that they can use. So analysis, using the strength and conditioning coaches properly, actually using the physios properly, doing your prehab and rehab after games, how you recover after games, are they going home and then going out with their mates from college or sick form or whatever, or are they actually going home two litres of water or whatever, whatever the recommendation is, um, how they actually use that they're in these environments where they can, they have access to all these people from these professional environments, professional backgrounds and using them properly and actually engaging with them as, as individual departments to actually create themselves as a, as a better athlete and a more whole athlete rather than just, you'll get some that actually maybe just be nauseous with performance analysis or some that just want to show up with their boots on a Saturday, which still happens at a senior level, by the way. So it's not just, not just academy lads that just want to show up on a Saturday with their boots and play. And then there's some that actually, they want to play. They don't want to train, but they want to get massive in the gym. And, and it, the difference in the actual elite approach for those players that do make it is completely different to sort of everyone else that isn't quite, doesn't quite make the cut. Absolutely. And I think it's, we're seeing now, aren't we, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary teams, how, mm. however you want to term it, they appear to be growing more and more in terms of development sport and elite sport. And, you know, we often see it from the point of view of how does the coach engage with these individuals? How are they working with the analyst? How are they working with the, the S&C coach, for example? But I also think we need to look at it from, from the player's point of view and educate players around, well, everyone around this table, be it the nutritionist, be it the psychologist, the analyst, can all help you to develop and, and this is how they can do it. But ultimately, I guess what we're saying is the ball is still going to be in the, the player's side of the court. If they choose to, you know, really take it on and engage with all these support services, then there's still going to be an element of luck, but they're putting themselves in the best position possible to go on and, and become an elite professional. Whereas, you know, like you say, if there's only one aspect that you're really engaged in, whether that is more, I'm going to turn up with my boots on, on a Saturday or, you know, I, I, I'm going to hammer the gym, then you probably not developing holistically, as we would say. Yeah. Certainly not utilizing all the support services to be able to, to develop kind of, to your fullest, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think it's something the athletes need to be kind of aware of because I, I remember having a, a conversation with our our late, I say late boss, he's not dead, but like he's moved, he's left and gone to another club. He um he always used to say that like, you can be the best coach in the world. And again, this happens at senior level, but you can identify these type of traits earlier on. You can be the best coach in the world, but if the player doesn't want to engage, that they he used to call them coach killers they're going to get you sacked because they're just not going to do what they're told. So you, you, the sooner you can get the players into these good habits and these have just, I think it's just like for us in the rugby environment or at, at club anyway, it's just having good values and just 
everyone knowing their job and everyone doing what's expected of them. So doing have doing recovery. Don't just go home after training. You actually go put compression trousers on or go jump in the ice bath or go sit on a bike or whatever, go get a massage or whatever those, whatever your sort of post-match routine is, your recovery, just do it. Because also that has a knock-on effect for the younger lads that come in and seeing the senior players do it. They see it as good practice. Do your homework. Watch the training sessions. Engage in the meetings and actually use, again, it goes back like, like exactly like you said, just use these different departments to develop yourself to be better. Um, and, and it's trying to get the, the players to engage in. And an analysis is is a hard one because some people see it's just like a really boring, nausy, nerdy kind of part of the process. I think that's slightly changing, but only slightly. I think <laughs> I, don't, I still don't think all players are quite happy to, they want to watch their highlights. They'll watch their highlights quite happily and they'll watch themselves do good stuff all day long, but they won't really want to engage and watch the knock-on effect of their two involvements. So watching the watching a wide angle and seeing right, we you didn't do your job here, or you you're out of position. Two phases later, we can see the line break because defensive systems had to shift, or whatever that looks like, and just getting them to actually engage and understand. And and, and, I, and I'm using it from a negative point of view. Uh, it happens from a positive point of view, but that accountability. So you, you didn't do your job here, okay? So we we can see the line break there. We had to then scramble D. Or this is what happens when you do do your job. This is why we have these systems in place, either defence or attack. You then create a support in line. You know, and we, we score a try from it, for example, and using, using it as evidence of actually the importance of those players knowing and doing their roles properly. And obviously it filters down to actually engaging in the values of the club, of the, the coaching, the physios, S&C analysis. And I wonder whether this idea of kind of Leading by example, it goes back to what we spoke about earlier in this transition from the analyst to moving away from just being a camera operator and someone that sits behind the computer to actually being seen and being involved in the conversations, being seen by the players, you know, in and around the training ground on match day and not just being tucked away kind of on a gantry somewhere. And I I think there is the need for analysts to be more proactive so that they can develop and try and get players and coaches engaged throughout the whole process and using analysis to, to its full potential. Yeah. And I, and I think it's that, that ability to offer players the opportunity to learn. We, we used to, I can remember when we had um, the legend that is Toby Booth come and join Queens. I, I learned I learned so much from him and I think he was only with us for seven, eight months before he got a head coaching role over, I think it was at Ospreys. He came in and said, we're, we're going to give the forwards every opportunity to learn their roles for the line out, set piece, everything. Um, so then that we can hold them accountable. So when we say this didn't work, they've got no excuses. And I thought, God, he's, he's brutal, this bloke. Like just really sort of kind of prickly, I thought. But actually he was bang on. We ended up, Every training session, once we got our line-out menu done, so I did all the opposition line-out analysis, gave it to the players on a Monday morning, the line-out leaders. We'd come out with our line-out menu to counteract them at the weekend. So what we did is we did a walkthrough. So we'd film it. We'd then also um, create a line-out menu so they got a written version of what we're going to run. They had a video version, like a literally a walkthrough, and then they'd also have the walkthrough with the movements written on the bottom of the video and I'll just send it out by WhatsApp. 
So they had everything. So we, we also had a database of all the lineup moves on the server. So if they were unsure of any specific moves, because I don't know, maybe for whatever reason we missed it in the training session, the boys forgot to run it, they'd be able to go on the server and say, this is a an L4 or whatever, whatever the movement looks like. I don't think I'm giving away anything, any secrets there, so that's okay. I'm sure I'll get a text if anyone does hear and finds out. So they literally have the, the visual, like the visual to to be able to look at it. They, they, can, they, can, they can read actually the direction of what's involved. Um, they'd have been talked through it during the meetings. So we set we essentially set them up to be successful. Whereas I think we can, and, and, that, and again, that is the where we need to be, like you say, be proactive as analysts and actually don't just go, oh, I'm like, I, I, the hours were ridiculous, but it was worth it because we actually started to get success. Academy players who that had to fill in at the weekend because of injuries had these ability, had these sort of, had these things available to them to actually learn so they could come in and sit into the environment, not comfortably, but a lot easier than what it used to be before when we'd go out in the training session, we'd film the session, but when you'd go back and watch it in a review room, there was no text on it to tell you what that line was or where it was going to be run. So we'd have the field position, we'd have this, what the setup looked like. So we'd, we'd have a name for the setup, then we'd have the name of the movement and then what the delivery would be of that movement all on these video clips. So the players could look at it and be like, right, okay, that makes sense. Because when you run it in a training session, they're stood in the gym. You don't know where on the pitch it's going to be. It's all going to look exactly the same because you just got the gym and then you've got the backs throwing balls over in front of you. Like, yeah, again, I'll be careful what I say, but just being annoying because they, they all they've got to do is run around past the ball and kick it and chase it and stuff. They don't have any sort of any dirty work to do like the forwards do. So we'd, we'd set the forwards up to, we'd essentially set them up to succeed rather than what I think can happen in analysis. If you just give players one thing to look at and then one style or, or in one way that you feel suits you or you think suits one specific player, you're kind of almost setting the other players up to fail. So without having that text on, those academy analysts, those academy players, sorry, the senior academy boys might come in and be like, they get a call up on a Thursday, right, I've got to go watch training. And you've just got a, a video of the, the players just running the lineouts, but without any context of where that lineout will be, what the call of it is. It, do, do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's making sure they have everything available to them to be successful. And it is, it, it makes extra work for the analysts, but, I kind of think it's important. If you if you want to be successful, you have to be willing to put that extra, that little bit of extra in to help someone else, some like someone else out. Absolutely, and look, I think that leads us really nicely to kind of my last question, just about if you were to kind of speak to analysts that or p- people potentially maybe want to get into performance analysis and people looking at that first opportunity of of stepping into a sports environment what would kind of your recommendations be in terms of, you know, creating that buy-in, but also like you've just discussed, having that level of detail to, to what you do and making sure that it's not just about going through the process, but actually there's a reason for everything that we do and, and there's a detail to everything that we do as well. Ooh, for me, it'd be first and foremost, learn your craft, make sure you, make sure you learn the basic what needed don't think you're going to go straight into the senior environment and start being able to tell people what to do you have to you have everything you do with an analysis certainly at elite level you have to earn that right 
And um, some players will offer you that. Some coaches will offer you that. And also, you'll also probably find that some won't. Um, I think know, know the environment. And by that, I mean learn the relationships, how relationships work between coaches, how relationships work between coaches and certain players, um, how players work with analysts or other back from back rooms and stuff. You can't go around forcing yourself onto people, I don't think. Um, and then try and take the time to, it's very easy in, in, in a new environment or something I've noticed with uh, people who just come into a, any sort of practitioner role. It's great to have confidence, but sometimes you can be slightly overconfident in your environment because you haven't maybe been around for long enough. So take the time just to learn the environment, learn the individual, so then you are able to be probably for me one of the biggest, one of the biggest and most important traits in analysts is you can then be adaptable. If you already have your craft, you can then be adaptable to any type of person, any type of team, or any type of individual or any type of athlete. And you can structure your workflow, your personal characteristics to suit them. Because it, it, whether we like it or not, we aren't we aren't playing on a Saturday afternoon. We're not we're not going to be playing at three o'clock at the stoop. Unfortunately, we're going to be sat in the back, getting everything ready for um, getting everything ready for the review on Monday. Hopefully, after a good result. So we're not going to be there for the photo opportunities. It's it's the the guys and girls that will be playing on the Saturday that we have to work for. Um, and it, people think it's kind of, we, we're all in it together, the players, that kind of makes the players arrogant, but it's not. It's actually, we're part of a bigger picture, we're part of a bigger system, and it's those guys that are at the, they're at the spearhead of it. We have to do everything we can for them to be good. So whether you're in a development environment, you're, you have to do everything you can to suit those individuals or that group to be the best they can be to give them a chance of making it. And obviously, at a senior level, you have to do everything you can in your power and sometimes go above and beyond to give the, the, the players on the Saturday everything they can um, to be the best that they can be on the Saturday to get the results in because it is, it's not about us. So therefore, we have to be adaptable to uh, environments and we have to kind of be flexible with our thought process. There's no good saying, well, I do analysis like this and that's how it works. You have to be able to turn around and coaches be like, that doesn't make sense to me. You have to go and be able to review your own work and review your own practices to adapt to, to your situations. Look, Mark, I think that's a, a great place for us to finish. Thank you ever so much for, for joining us today on the Half Space podcast. It's been great to catch up and find out a little bit more about you and some of the principles that, that underpin the analysis that you do. So thank you ever so much. Well, thank you for having me. Follow us on Twitter at the Half Space Podcast.